When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50% to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hey, Small Town Fam. How are you guys? It's Yardley. I'm so glad that you're here. We have such a cool episode for you today. So as most of you know, the Small Town Dicks team went to CrimeCon in Orlando, Florida for the first time this past September. Well, I should qualify that and say Paul Holes is a CrimeCon veteran, but it was a con debut for me and Dan and Dave. And on top of meeting hundreds of you there, our fabulous fans, in the hallways, at our scheduled meet and greets, which we loved, by the way, we did a live panel on stage with Paul giving us one of the cases he'll never forget. And today, we're bringing you that live recording. Now, you can either listen to it right here, as is, like you always do, or you can bop on over to our YouTube channel at Small Town Dicks Podcast and watch the panel in its entirety like you were in Orlando with us. What I love about this live recording is that you get a rare glimpse of your favorite detectives in the wild, unfiltered and unedited. And of course, they're fantastic. I am going to warn you that the case Paul gives us is about a child's abduction and murder. But you know, Paul, he is always sparing when it comes to the worst details in those kinds of cases. You'll also hear a couple of unexpected moments of levity, which I promise you were not a sign of disrespect on anyone's part. On the contrary, Paul's story was so heavy, it seemed like everyone in that ballroom just needed to release the tension and breathe again. And when I muttered that the suspect was an asshole... And Detective Dave made a comment about Lisa Simpson swearing. The whole room just burst out laughing. When I listened back to this recording, it's clear it was just a moment that allowed us to regroup and keep going. Towards the end of our panel, Paul talks about the motives of serial predators and how they select their victims. And then we finish up with some really great questions from the audience that, of course, elicit equally thoughtful answers from the A-Team. I am so glad you're here. Now, please enjoy Small Town Dicks Live at CrimeCon Orlando. Hi there. I'm Yardley. I'm Dan. I'm Dave. And I'm Paul. And this is Small Town Dicks. Dave and I are identical twins and retired detectives from Small Town, USA. And I'm a veteran cold case investigator who helped catch the Golden State Killer using a revolutionary DNA tool. Between the three of us, we've investigated thousands of crimes, from petty theft to sexual assault, child abuse to murder. Each case we cover is told by the detective who investigated it, offering a rare, personal account of how they solved the crime. Names, places, and certain details have been changed to protect the privacy of victims and their families. And although we're aware that some of our listeners may be familiar with these cases, we ask you to please join us in continuing to protect the true identities of those involved out of respect for what they've been through. Thank Thank you. you. They were one of the first podcasts on the true crime scene to feature detectives telling their own stories of big crime happening in small town USA. Please welcome... For the CrimeCon debut, Yardley Smith, Detective Dan, Detective Dave and Paul Holes from Small Town Dicks. 
That's you. I'm so glad people came. This is really fantastic. We are so thrilled to be here. I'm Yardley. I have with me the usual suspects. I have Detective Dan. Hello, CrimeCon. I have Detective Dave. Happy to be here. And we have the one and only Paul Holes. This really is amazing. We're so excited to be here. We have a very short time, so no time for banter. Okay, Paul, go. <laughs> no pressure, right? No, I, you know, I am going to be talking about a case um, that I've never talked about before. And it's a case that, you know, quite frankly, I'm probably going to struggle to get through. Um, but uh, I do want to just give the, you know, the caveat that I'm not going to go into any graphic details, so don't worry about that. But the circumstances of this case are hard to hear. And so just be forewarned, this is a fucked up case. And fucked up. We're, it's going to be tough. Um, but with that, I ended up reaching out to the victim's mother, Stephanie, who I've got a very tight bond with, and she gave me permission to talk. Um, and you're going to learn a lot about Stephanie and an amazing woman. So with that, Ziana was born to her bio mom when bio mom was in custody in prison back in 1992. And Ziana is the victim. Ziana is going to be the victim, yes. Uh, Ziana, because mom, bio mom was in prison, Stephanie took over raising Ziana. And uh, Ziana was raised in a very loving and caring household. Spent about four years being raised in Hawaii, and then about two and a half years in Colorado Springs, where, where I currently live. I know the quality of life that Ziana had. And Paul, does Stephanie have a biological relationship to Ziana? So Stephanie, uh, biologically, is Ziana's great aunt, but she is Ziana's mom. Got it. And so I will always be referring to Stephanie as Yana's mom. In June of 1999, Biomom wants Ziana. And Ziana is now transferred over to Biomom, who's living in Vallejo, California. And this means that Biomom has gotten out of prison. Biomom has gotten out of prison. She's working for a cab company as a dispatcher and has a live-in boyfriend. And I'm going to apologize to anybody in here who's from Vallejo. But back in the 90s, Vallejo was the armpit of the Bay Area. <laughs> High crime, a lot of gang violence, a lot of drug activity, uh, a lot of sexual assaults, uh, and at the time, my sheriff's office had entered into a contractual relationship with Vallejo PD for forensic services. So I spent a lot of time going up to Vallejo for crime scene processing, officer-involved shootings, and everything else. Vallejo, uh, Ziana is now in this environment, in an apartment, and at seven years old, she's having to walk by herself to get, pick, get picked up by the bus to go to school. And the bus stop is a good couple few, of blocks. A few blocks in, in this area. Yeah. Neighbors within the apartment complex recall seeing Ziana. If she missed the bus, she would go back to this apartment complex. She's locked out of the, the, the residence, and she's just sitting in the hallway with her backpack crying. So obviously there's been a massive change in Ziana's quality of life. In December of 1999, Ziana goes to pick up the bus and she's never seen again. She goes missing. The boyfriend initially stated that he had dropped her off at the bus stop but when he was interviewed later, he recanted. In essence, she was tasked as a seven-year-old girl to walk to this bus stop alone. Who does that? So of course, 
Stephanie, who's living in Colorado Springs, and she's got her two children, she relocates to Vallejo to help find her daughter. Um, of course, when a seven-year-old girl goes missing, there's massive searches. There's huge community support looking for Ziana, but Ziana just never shows up, and months go by. Paul, how long has Ziana been missing before Stephanie moves from Colorado Springs to Vallejo? Stephanie is out there immediately. Right, right. And there's a fair amount of media attention in the Bay Area on this case. Um, and, you know, part of this is, I should probably say, you know, I'm not involved as this is going on. This is up in Vallejo. I'm just a line-level deputy sheriff criminalist at the time, but we are sending out staff to try to help Vallejo PD with, with this case. But I wasn't doing anything at this time. I was just more aware of this as, as uh, you know, the months seemed to tick by. Eight months go by, and now another eight-year-old girl goes missing. Same circumstances. She's com coming home from school, she's walking, and she never makes it home. And so this is Mitzi, Mitzi Sanchez. And you said she's about eight years old? She's eight years old. And Ziana was seven. And Ziana was seven at the time of her, when she disappeared. Four days later, Mitzi is seen running and jumping into the cab of a truck, and she's being chased by a white male. The truck driver pulls her into his cab, and this is at a truck stop, and sees this white male and understands something is wrong, obviously, and is able to get the license plate to the vehicle that the white male drove off in. I just, hats off to Missy for being eight years old and having the wherewithal and the composure to escape and go to this truck and be like, you gotta let me in, incredible. It, it's even more than that. Mitzi had been shackled inside this man's vehicle for four days. And when he went, left the vehicle at that truck stop, he left his keys on the, on the car seat. And this little eight-year-old girl is now taking the keys and she finds the right key in order to be able to undo the shackle, and then she just bolts. I love her. So the license plate number is called in, and the man is quickly identified and taken into custody. And his name is Curtis Dean Anderson. Curtis Dean Anderson is a career criminal. When I ran his criminal history, because now I'm going, who is this guy? His, his criminal history, his, uh, what we call the rap sheet, 11 pages long. Including in 1985, he was arrested for rape, but then charges were dismissed because uh, the victim was not able to be found. 1991, he had been arrested for abducting an adult woman, um, and he actually was convicted of that. Served some time in prison, and he's in and out of prison. We have ultimately a very robust timeline on Curtis Dean Anderson because of his in and out of, of jail and prison. But he ends up, when, when, when I go up to Sacramento, to California DOJ, um, I see a crime analyst had built a timeline uh, on her shelf. And so I'm now looking at Curtis Dean Anderson's timeline, and I see that he had been paroled to Contra Costa County in 1987. And that, that immediately triggered something in me because our jurisdiction had a 1988 missing girl case, Amber Schwartz Garcia. I was going, here's a guy who's abducted Mitzi Sanchez and he was paroled into my jurisdiction the year prior to another similar age girl going missing. 
after Curtisine Anderson was arrested for Mitzi Sanchez's case, and he's charged with kidnapping and other, other charges, um, of course there is a thought, could he be responsible for Ziana's case? And as Vallejo is now investigating this, people come forward and say they saw him talking to Ziana several times in the days before she went missing at the bus stop. Curtis Dean Anderson worked for the cab company that Ziana's bio mom worked at and that the live-in boyfriend worked at. Paul, is there any indication that Anderson used that familiarity with the cab company and, hey, I work with your parents to give him a little bit more access? This, uh, there's, there's no witnesses to say you know, on the day of the abduction that it looked like he had befriended her and, and said, hey, I'll give you a ride to school or anything like that. But that's a likely scenario. You know, he, he probably was grooming Ziana to be comfortable with him in the days prior to when he uh, ended up did, taking her. You think about, for patrol cops, we're on a perimeter. I see a cab roll through a perimeter and I'm like, hmm, did somebody make a phone call? But you see cabs everywhere and they are driving anywhere and they can just kind of go under the radar and blend right people, in. It's not suspicious. It's, oh, the guy's just hanging out waiting for his next fare. Right, right. How old is Curtis Dean Anderson when he's gets you set your sights on him? Yeah, you know, he's at, at this time, he's about 42 years old. Does he have a family? What's his deal? He, he, he has a family. He had a son. Uh, you know, his, his childhood, he's always been um, on the wrong side of the law. You know, his initial entry in his, uh, in his criminal history, he was sentenced to uh, youth authority uh, for burglary. And, you know, he has numerous burglary charges as well as um, uh, a deadly weapon, possession of deadly weapons, uh, assault with deadly weapons. And also just, you know, trivial stuff. He's just always doing something bad. But of course now he's going through um, the, the, the criminal justice process for the abduction of Mitzi Sanchez. And uh, he, Stephanie, now that she's in Vallejo and she's recognizing, does he have Ziana? Stephanie ends up going in on a regular basis and is talking to Curtis Dean Anderson. And this is where now, I've, I've made this, this phrase, the sentence before, never underestimate the depravity of the human male. Now the evil of Curtis Dean Anderson comes to light. Curtis Dean Anderson admits to abducting Ziana, but basically he says, I gave Ziana to this other man. She's alive. I know where she's at. But I'm not going to tell you. And Paul, Stephanie is interviewing Curtis Dean Anderson in prison, right? Is, is she? He's, well, she's going into jail because he's, a, right. he's now being prosecuted for Mitzi's abduction. Um, and they end up not only having these face-to-face -face interviews, they end up doing uh, correspondence. They're writing letters to each other. And you can see some of the excerpts. There's over 100 pages of Curtis Dean Anderson's writings. And what Curtis, what Anderson is doing is he's basically dangling Ziana's safety in return in front of Stephanie to keep Stephanie engaging with him. And he's asking Stephanie to wear certain types of clothing because that's what he wants to see her in. He is saying, tell me, it's almost like, you know, Silence of the Lambs with uh, Hannibal and, and Jodie Foster's character, that quid pro quo. He would give little tidbits of, oh, here, here's a little clue about where you can find Ziana, but I want you to tell me more about you. And so now Stephanie is being traumatized more and more, but the strength she got from wanting to get Ziana back, kept her going. And does she, does Stephanie at this point still believe Ziana might be alive? Yes. So she, and, and that's what Anderson is saying, Ziana's alive, Ziana's alive. Do what I say, you know, and I, eventually maybe I'll let you know, you know, where Ziana's at. Fucking asshole. 
Jesus. That's an eight-year-old girl that just said that, Lisa Simpson. Lisa Simpson passes like a sailor, what can I say? One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Hey folks, Detective Dave here. Let me tell you about Simply Safe, the home security system that I trust to keep my family safe. I depend on Simply Safe to provide me and my loved ones with 360 degree coverage of my property and valuables. I love the variety of monitoring sensors available with Simply Safe Home Security. You get a glass break sensor, which in my experience is one of the most effective tools of detecting a break in. In addition, Simply Safe offers motion sensors, entry sensors, sirens, and flood and fire detection. With Simply Safe Home Security, I have the flexibility to use keypads at multiple entries at my house. This option is especially important to me and my family. I can provide access to people I trust and limit having multiple keys outside of my control, all at the push of a button via the Simply Safe app. It comes with a variety of cameras for indoors and outdoors. And best of all, Simply Safe is backed by 24-7 professional monitoring for less than $1 a day. It gives me peace of mind knowing I can leave the house, I can leave town, I can even leave the country, and I know my home is Simply Safe. The mobile app integration makes it so easy to make sure everything's in place in real time. I check it every day when I'm away from home. Simply Safe is the best. U.S. News and World Report names Simply Safe. Best Home Security Systems 2024. And Newsweek ranked it Best Customer Service in Home Security. With Simply Safe, there are no contracts. And if you're not happy with the service or the product, they have a 60 day money back guarantee. Simply Safe has given me and many of our listeners real peace of mind. We want you to have it too. Right now, get 20% off any new Simply Safe system with Fast Protect monitoring at simplysafe.com slash small town. That's simplysafe.com slash small town. There's no safe like Simply Safe. And then the worst news possible. January 2001, down in the Los Gatos area, which is south of San Jose, kind of between San Jose and Santa Cruz and sort of the beginning of the mountainous areas, a construction worker finds a skull. DNA testing shows that the skull is Ziana's. Stephanie, of course, wants to know where the rest of Ziana's at. And she calls me out of the blue. And I have no involvement in this case up to this point outside of having assigned some, some, some work to be done. Um, and Stephanie comes in and pays me a visit. And this is about a year after Ziana Skull had been found. And Stephanie was frustrated that nothing had happened with this homicide investigation. Curtis Dean Anderson had been found guilty of Missy Sanchez's abducted, abduction and other criminal charges and had been sentenced to 250 years to life. So he's done, right? 
But Stephanie wanted to know for sure that Anderson not only had abducted Sianna, but Anderson was also responsible for Sianna's homicide, or was there somebody else involved? But as she was dealing with the agencies, in essence, she's frustrated because the agencies are saying, we've got other priority cases right now. How do you have a higher priority case than an abduction homicide of a seven-year-old girl? You don't. No. Paul, that's a lot like telling a girlfriend to calm down, right? <laughs> it doesn't work out. Things I happen. I don't think I'm going to touch that. <laughs> I'm guilty. So, Paul, just talk about that for a second. About So, because Curtis Dean Anderson is already in custody, and he's got this, he's never getting out, yep. the feeling can be, well, we don't need any extra charges to attach to him to keep him in prison, so we're gonna move on to something that feels more current. So is that a bit of why Ziana's case gets sort of swept to the side? Yeah, and, and this, is a, this is a very typical thing that happens within law enforcement, is that if you have an offender that ha has involvement in multiple cases, if he is convicted of one, oftentimes work on the other cases cease. And this is where there's this detachment from the families. You know, if we're dealing with homicide or sexual assault, the families or the victims themselves are going, well, what about my case? You know, they want not only to have that conclusive answer, they want the justice. And here now Stephanie is saying, I want to know for sure. And if it was Anderson, I want him found guilty of Ziana's homicide. It's so important to the families. And us in law enforcement have a tendency to forget that. And we have to do a better job. I also think that you're putting all your eggs in one basket when you do that. And there are appeals, there are things that happen post-conviction where maybe that conviction goes away and you could have been way out in front of this by investigating the case fully. Doing yes. your job, that's what your job is. Yeah, and, and, and I will say, you know, I know uh, some of these investigators that were on Ziana's case, these were great detectives. Um, they had a big job to do, this was a very busy agency. But then, you know, Stephanie doesn't want that answer. And she's now pushing, and, and this is where you see a mom's strength come forward. My highest priority after Stephanie talked to me, and when she comes in, she is literally saying, I want to see this, this, and this done. Uh, you know, they collected these items out of Anderson's car. Can't we do DNA on that? Because Ziana would put crayons in her mouth, or she had black gloves with her. It was December when she went missing. You know, they found a black glove in Anderson's car. You know, so she's wanting to see evidence being processed. But my highest priority was to get all of Ziana back to Stephanie. And Paul, uh, Anderson's car had been taken for the case of Mitzi's abduction. Yes. And it's a trove of forensic evidence. Yes. So Stephanie is like, dude, there is so much stuff there. Why are we sitting on this? Well, and this is where you, you think Anderson had used this vehicle, had kept Mitzi in there for four days, doing all sorts of things inside that vehicle. Um, likely, this is what happened to Ziana in the same vehicle. She likely was shackled in the same vehicle. And so, of course, her presence could be identified through DNA, through latent prints. Um, and that's something that I did focus on, and I'll talk about that in a second, but my priority is I want to try to see well, is the rest of Ziana out there? And so Stephanie and I actually uh, drove down together to where uh, Ziana's skull was found. So Stephanie showed me the exact location. Yeah, and this is a, a place where Stephanie and her family go every year. Oh, is it like a... Almost, this is, it's, this is in memory of Ziana. Can you imagine, you know? Uh, so now I'm seeing this location. I have a sense, it's very, uh, almost like mountainous type of terrain, heavy vegetation. And so I start researching. Well, what did they do during their search for Ziana out there? Because having been involved in searching for uh, bodies, it is not easy, especially in this type of terrain. But my hope was, is maybe there is something I could 
see and maybe resources that hadn't been utilized. There used to be an entity out there called Necrosurfs with some high-end specialists that could, you know, is there some, somebody like that that we could bring in? But as I researched this area, you know, part of, with her skull having been found by, you know, off the side of the road, you know, there's a good chance that she was just what we call a surface deposit. She wasn't buried, but probably on the surface. Finding out what animals were in this area just crushed me. In particular, in this area, there's wild boar. And wild boar are scavengers. And when they come across other animal remains, they eat those remains bone and all. So now I have to tell Stephanie, I don't think you're going to get Ziana. And this is one of the hardest things I ever had to tell a family member. And so I told Stephanie, I don't think you're going to get the rest of Ziana. And Stephanie asked me, well, why not? And I said, I, I don't think I can let you know exactly why. And she was like, I want to know. And so I told her. And Stephanie, you could see it impact her, but she bowed up and she just said, okay, and then let's move forward. And again, she just showed this tremendous resolution. She had a singular goal. She wanted to know what happened to Ziana, and she wanted to know who did it. And if it was Anderson, she wanted to make sure that he was held accountable. And Paul, do you want uh, to, what did they find when they find the skull? Did it indicate how Ziana might have been killed? So no, uh, unfortunately, th th there was no inf information on Ziana's skull that indicated cause of death, um, which is not unusual, you know, unless there's a, you know, a fracture from a blow, gunshot wound, oftentimes the skull just doesn't reveal that. And without the rest of Ziana's body, to this day, we don't know for sure from physical evidence how she was killed, can speculate how she was killed. So now I turn my attention, just like what you brought up Yardley, to all this evidence. And because this evidence had been collected under the Mitzi Sanchez case, and it had gone through trial, and you had the FBI involved, as well as the local agency, this evidence had been shotgunned out across a variety of different entities. When you think about evidence, it will go to a local crime lab, it will go to the federal crime lab, it goes into different property rooms. When it goes to trial, some of that evidence goes to the DA's office. The DA then makes a decision which items of evidence are going to be admitted into court. If it's admitted into court, now it goes into the court's evidence room. Uh, DNA extracts are being held in various different laboratories. So my goal was, was to try to untangle this fragmentation of all this evidence because any single item in the Mitzi Sanchez case could have potential to prove Anderson's involvement in Ziana's case. Not only just his statements, but now to have that physical evidence. And now this is where I am interacting with uh, the, the investigating agency, uh, kind of even though this case came to me by Ziana's mom coming to me, now I'm inserting myself into this investigation. How do they feel about that? You know, this, any agency, you know, when somebody from the outside comes in, you know, they, they are a little bit resistant. I had a relationship with this, this agency, though, and they at least took what I was telling them, and to their credit. But still, things seem to just not move forward. And now Stephanie decides, I'm going to go pay a visit to the Santa Clara Sheriff, the elected sheriff. And this elected sheriff was, was a woman. And so Stephanie sat down with the sheriff and said, mom to mom. Now, Stephanie, when I reached out to, to talk about this case, she made me promise I would say this, that in addition to the mom to mom discussion, Stephanie said, I want Ziana's case to go to me, to this Paul Holes up in Contra Costa County. And the sheriff got very indignant. And he's not even a peace officer, which is wrong. 
But Stephanie believes that the threat of me and, and, and her wanting me to take the case on is what caused that sheriff to dedicate homicide investigative resources to Ziana's case. I believe it was the mom to mom. So they end up digging into the case. Forensic testing gets underway. They're also interviewing Curtis Dean Anderson. Who's interviewing him? Uh, Santa Clara homicide investigators as well as Vallejo homicide investigators. Got it. At this point in time. And eventually Anderson confesses not only to the abduction of Ziana, but also to Ziana's homicide. And he gives some details, not all details. And I'm not going to go into, again, the graphic aspects. But he does say that he took, he put Ziana's body in a Navy duffel bag, went out to this location where her skull was found, and threw that over the edge. So a surface deposit. And do we know if Anderson held Ziana hostage the way he did Mitzi? So Anderson had held Ziana hostage for a period of time in his vehicle, as well as in a room down in Santa Clara County. And I'm not going to go into any details about that. So Anderson ends up being sentenced. You know, he's convicted, he's sentenced to 350 years for Ziana's homicide. I mean, now. But of course, here's a man who's responsible for two abductions of girls. One is a homicide, and Mitzi, if she hadn't been so brave, likely would have been killed too. Special agents out of the Oakland office, FBI special agents out of the Oakland office, now start interviewing Anderson in prison. And he starts talking about other homicides that he's been involved with, saying, yeah, I killed a woman in this location. I don't know her name, but she looks somewhat like this. I met her at this location, and I killed her and dumped her at this location. So you have approximately six to seven of these types of cases that he's saying he did over the course of uh, several decades up in the Bay Area. To this day, none of those cases have been identified, and that's somewhat of a call to action. You can go to the FBI's uh, webpage, look up Curtis Dean Anderson and get the details of these cases that he claims he did. But there was also another case that he confessed to. Remember that 1988 homicide, or missing girl, Amber Schwartz Garcia, that I had going, hey, when I was up at DOJ, he confessed to abducting Amber. She was out jumping rope in front of her house when she went missing claims that he took her down and killed her down in the Arizona, outside of Phoenix area. One of the issues with Anderson is he's somebody that is willing to claim crimes that he has nothing to do with. That's his personality. He loved the attention. He was interviewed by TV reporters, and he really was just soaking up the idea that he's getting this type of attention for these horrible crimes. And I've kind of likened him to Henry Lee Lucas, a bona fide serial killer, did his own homicides, but also was saying, I did so much more. And in reality, he didn't. So that's part of the complexity in evalu evaluating Anderson's statements is what truly did he do? So right before these agents were going to go back and interview Anderson again to get more details of these unsolved cases so we could try to figure out which cases are his, he dies in prison. So now he's taken his secrets with him. bit about, um, we know that Anderson abducted, did he also murdered a, a, an adult woman? He didn't, no, he didn't kill he her. Just abducted her. He just so abducted her. there's this idea that 
um, serial offenders have a certain type or a strike zone and they really stay within that. The strike zone being perhaps an age preference or, you know, Bundy liked dark haired college girls, that sort of thing. But you, as you were prepping us on this case, you're talking about crossover offenders and I think, and how they experiment. I think it's a really fascinating um, tidbit of information. You know, th th there is a misperception, uh, and, and definitely was, and I think it's changing, but predominantly because of the Ted Bundy case. Th that the Ted Bundy case happened in the 70s, right when we were starting to truly understand what serial predators were. Um, and he, that got so much public notoriety, and he did have a, a, a preferred victim type. And so he would go after the same type of victim over and over again. So the thought was is that these predators just kind of lock in on a certain criteria, and that's all they're going to attack. Well, that's wrong. You know, as we've solved more of these serial cases, most of these serial predators take advantage of opportunities, and they will offend across different age ranges, different genders different uh, uh, racial characteristics. This is just the way they operate for the most part. Um, a lot of people think that, like with Curtis, An Curtis Dean Anderson, he's abducting these little girls, that he would only be interested in younger girls. Well, no, these types of offenders will also attack adults or vice versa, and that's where we see this, what's called the crossover offending. And when you have a series and you have victims that have different uh, characteristics in the past, it would be, well, we got multiple offenders operating in the same area, when in reality, no, you could have the same offender. And of course, in modern era with DNA, we often are able to link these cases together, but in, in some of these series, we don't have the DNA. So now we have to look at the behavioral characteristics, the MO aspects, in order to see, do I have a same offender, or do I have multiple offenders that are working in the same area at the same time? And Paul, that, that's an exercise we had to use constantly on patrol and detectives, that you don't pigeonhole every case, that you are thinking outside the box. It used to frustrate me to no end when we'd have somebody would say, oh no, it's a different guy, he got in through the window, the other guy just kicks in doors, and I'm like, that's pretty big assumption like <laughs> come on man maybe it's just a big door well you have to open your mind yeah and and, and part of it is you know I, I bring up mo versus uh, signatures and you know mo uh, is what the offender does in order to commit the crime and mo can change based on the dynamics of the crime based on the environmental conditions based on what the victim does uh, versus a signature is part of the offender's fantasy. He's committing this crime in order to get a certain type of gratification. And that's, he wants to do those behaviors. So MO can fluctuate. With Golden State Killer, Joseph D'Angelo, his MO changed pretty dramatically over the course of the series. You know, but there was certain behavioral characteristics that original investigators were able to use in order to help link those crimes together during an era where you didn't have DNA. And talk about um, the experimentation you told us about, the, the scalping. That was a good okay. example. You don't have to tell us, tell them how, but sure. you know what I'm saying? So uh, offenders do experiment as well. And, you know, they're paying attention, you know, they, you know, whether it's, uh, you know, back in the day, it used to be the true crime magazines, you know, that's uh, uh, pornography for the sexual sadist. That was, that's what they really got off on looking at, as well as they would get ideas on what they want to do. Of course, today it's the online world, uh, but they also pay attention to what other serial predators are doing. And a... Uh, California DOJ profiler during a task force meeting on a serial killer, Roger Kibbe, was talking to the group and there was some discussion about, well, we have all these unsolved cases that may or may not be related to Kibbe because there's differences. And she basically said she had worked a case in which you had an offender that had multiple victims and was doing the same thing for, across the series up until now they had a victim that had been scalped. And they go, we've got another killer because this other guy doesn't scalp. When they finally solved that case, 
that offender said, yeah, I had read about somebody else scalping one of his victims, and I decided I wanted to try that. So he tried it, and he goes, it didn't do anything for me. So he went back to doing what he was doing. And so you see this type of experimentation. D'Angelo, Golden State Killer, through the first 15 attacks as East Area Rapist, he varied widely in terms of how he was interacting with the victims. In one of the early attacks, he shows up with a padded baton and a handgun. In the 15th attack, he shows up with a hatchet. He's trying different mechanisms. So this is just something that really complicates whether or not do you have an active series or not, or do you have multiple offenders versus a singular offender? And that's where modern technology can give that answer. But this, this is where, at this point, Curtis Dean Anderson is dead. He was sentenced to a total of, what, 550 years to life. That seems like a good start. Just a start. He should still be rotting in the cell that he was, was in. And two families got an answer. But fundamentally, when you take a look at how this case paid off, played out, Stephanie and Mitzi brought down a serial killer, and because of their efforts, he didn't hurt anybody else after that. So, you know, I talked to Stephanie recently, you know, and I was hoping to see if I could get her out here to meet everybody here. This case is still too hard for her. Um, but, you know, it's in memory of Zihana. You know, she had such a beautiful life and was in such a loving and caring environment. It's just so sad that it was taken away. It's unimaginable. And if you want, if anybody has interest, you know, these, these letters that Aunt Stephanie and Curtis Dean Anderson exchanged as Stephanie was desperately trying to find Ziana, they are available to be read. Uh, Stephanie and Christy Belcamino did put a book out there. And if you want to just see the depravity of Anderson and the resilience of Stephanie, I would recommend taking a look at this. What's the name of the book? It's called uh, Letters from a Serial Killer yeah. by Christy Belcamino and Stephanie Kahalakulu. Um, thank you so much for sharing that. I always say, you know, for all of the missteps or agencies being overwhelmed, thank God there are people like the three of you here on stage who never drop the ball. How much time do we have left? I can't see that. Looks clock. like we have about 15 minutes. Ooh, we got some Q&A time. Yahtzee, listen, that I got was the first a good one. job. I got the first question. Oh. Oh, no. What are we going to do about the water in, in the Bay Area? What's going on there with all the serial killers? You know, well, this is, I do get this question a lot. Um, you know, of course, I, I was a cold case investigator. Uh, I really focused in on cases. A lot, of the, a lot of my efforts were on cases, cold cases from the 1960s to the 1970s. And within the East Bay, San Francisco, uh, Santa Cruz area, uh, as well as, you know, up north in Sonoma, we did have a cluster, an unusual spike in terms of serial predator crimes. And then it seemed to subside, particularly in my jurisdiction. Well, back in the day, there were uh, easy pools of victims. You know, you think about Edmund Kemper. You know, he's focusing in on females that were hitchhiking. Uh, and once our culture changed, and we don't see as many females uh, hitchhiking anymore, these predators go to a different victim source. Predators go to where the prey's at. You know, of course, we have the unusual types that will go into houses like a D'Angelo. But where what I saw was a transition of the predators going to the street with, where the sex workers 
and now you have um, victims that are voluntarily getting into these predators' cars. So that was the easy prey. And today, people are saying, well, there's no way there's serial killers out there because of all the technology. Well, where are the prey today? It's online. And whether it be adults or whether it be children, people like Anderson are in the computers. Dave, Detective Dave actually gives a fantastic presentation about online safety. It's usually, he used to give this talk to community groups, you know, uh, uh, parent-teacher conferences and stuff like that, and we did an episode on it on our other podcast, The Briefing Room. It's so worth a listen, it will fucking scare you to death. These people are so wily, they're so clever, and recently you opened the new season of The Briefing Room with uh, Rue Powell, who has her own show, um, Catching Predators, and it's, it's remarkable, and it's such good information. Um, so yeah, you're right, Paul. I mean, you sort of, the, the species who survive for good or bad, adapt. They're massively adaptable. Right, and, and it's, it's, it's just going to be a constant cat and mouse game. You know, there are, particularly those types of offenders that I characterize as your more sophisticated and intelligent offender, your organized offender, they are adapting to the technologies and they're going to exploit that. And now law enforcement is trying to catch up and then these offenders will find a different thing to, to bypass what law enforcement is, is trying to do. some questions. How do, how do you do that here in, at CrimeCon? How does that happen? Somebody pass a microphone? Over here. Over, over here. There's one. Shout it out, my friend. Hello. I uh, grew up in Cottage Grove, Oregon. <laughs> Go Ducks. Go, Go Ducks. ducks. Okay. Right. Um, I am forever haunted by the murder of Officer Kilcullen. Um, and I was just wondering how you guys thought that if we had better mental health resources, do you think that Officer Kilcone would be alive and well with his family today? Uh, man, this case just gets me every time. Um, I think there were a lot of failures that happened on the front end of that case that uh, ultimately cost Chris his life. Um, I, think we, I think there are a lot of things that we need to address regarding mental health, uh, people owning guns, and there's a lot of money that goes into mental health, and I think we need to maybe restructure how that money is spent. That's my feeling. Um, I'm not a mental health professional, but I have encountered numerous people in crisis, and there needs to be more being done for it. I think we got over here. So I'll move to over the left. Um, question for anybody on the panel, but Paul, you mentioned that in prior decades that offenders would read detective magazines and um, use it not only as pornography, but to learn new tips and tricks and how to avoid detection. And I'm wondering, one of the um, sessions that they have planned here for CrimeCon is about the ethics of true crime. Um, that whole system that we've all become a part of, where we feel like we're here fangirling all the detectives and the media people, but they're clearly there are people who are also fans of the criminals. And I wonder what your thoughts are about the explosion of true crime media and how that might be impacting future criminals. Yeah, and one of the things I want to address with, with that question is true crime is not new. I mean, this is the ultimate human drama. Uh, you know, and like I have another podcast with Kate Winkler Dawson, Buried Bones, where she talks historic crimes. And, and back in the day, you know, masses of people would attend the, the court trials or would watch the executions, you know, hundreds of years ago. So this isn't new. We just happen to have 
the persistence of information about cases online, and now that helps generate interest. Now, as far as the ethics of true crime, um, this is where you know a message that I have always said when I have talked in front of uh, the CrimeCon groups is understand true crime is real crime. We come out of real crime. We've seen the devastation to the victims, the victims' families. We know what that really is. You in this audience could be sitting next to somebody who has been devastated by real crime. It is okay to learn about the case. And some of these cases are fascinating and there may be an entertainment aspect to it, but never forget that somebody has been hurt by these cases. And it's okay to learn about the bad guy, but don't glorify the bad guy. Because even though you may hear about what Ted Bundy did, or Gary Ridgway did, or Dennis Rader did, or Joseph D'Angelo did, I guarantee, unless you've worked those cases, you have no clue in terms of how horrifying these people are. So fundamentally, I don't have an issue with true crime as long as the people who are consuming true crime keep the right perspective that that true crime impacted somebody in a very negative way. Dave. Dave, you want to talk a little bit about when we started Small Town Dicks, it was originally going to be just Dan and Dave, and they were going to sort of, there's a lot of gallows humor in law enforcement. It's one of the ways they cope. It's going to be a lot of that. They're going to talk about their cases. We did a pilot. It was a disaster. And Dan and Dave were in the hot tub at my house, and they're like, this, it can't happen this way. And it became, it was also very slurry. There was a lot of scotch on board. Um, but it became very victim-centric and very, we must be reverent towards the work as well as the people who have been impacted. Do you want to talk a little bit about that? Sure. I, there's a place for levity, and of course I am funny to myself at least, but sometimes <laughs> make people laugh. He tries. But I try to... I, that's my release valve for stress. I make a horribly inappropriate joke, usually not in the company of people, but I mutter something to myself. It's how I release the pressure. When we recorded our first episode, A, we were shit-faced. <laughs> scotch, more scotch, have another. You're telling this story that's about two bodies being found in a freezer, and I'm like, this isn't gonna work. And so Dan and I really took that to heart. Yardley's got a hot tub. I was like, let's go in there and figure out how to unscrew what we just did today. <laughs> and we really said, I said, I can't be funny when we're talking about this stuff. I, like, conscious, my conscience won't allow me to. I can't sleep. I have my own battles with even having a true crime show about us telling these stories and that for me it's a way for us to relay how it hits a detective and a lessons learned and hey this is when I made a mistake it really is we're trying to educate and I think our detectives across the land who tell these stories they need a release valve too I mean if we're gonna hammer on mental health when do the first responders get to take care of themselves this is just an avenue to do that Question over here. So I grew up in the Bay Area. I'm very familiar with Amber Schwartz Garcia's case. I was a little girl, same age as her. And I was just curious, um, the two other girls that were missing at the same time as her, Eileen Mischelhoff and um, Michaela Garrett, did they ever link him with these as well? Or was there any, I'm sure they've looked into it. But. No, he, he is, uh... He, he definitely was looked at. You know, of course, both of those cases are still unsolved. Uh, Eileen really? Mischeloff and Michaela Garrett are two young girls that went missing, uh, one in Hayward, one in Alameda County uh, back in the 1980s. Um, there's, there is a handful of cases in the Bay Area of missing kids uh, that uh, are well known to anybody within law enforcement. 
So at this point in time, uh, Anderson is somebody that was looked at for those two cases, but they couldn't uh, uh, obviously close a case on Anderson. He didn't confess to him. And I'm not sure off the top of my head if maybe his uh, custodial status may have eliminated him from one or both of those. Uh, another person that was looked at was Phil Garrido, the one who abducted J.C. Dugard and kept her alive. And in fact, Michaela Garrett's mom showed up at uh, the Garrido property wondering if Michaela was somewhere on, on that property. Uh, and I was out there helping with the, uh, the excavation, looking to see if Garrido had actually kids buried on, on his property, and we didn't find anybody. So those two cases you brought up are, are uh, ones that are still being looked at. There's a 1979 case out of uh, Montalvin Manor, Terracossi, who also is still missing. You know, so there is still, there's still other cases, and we don't know who, who's responsible, and, and unfortunately, we haven't found the kids, at least a Dickinson out of Walnut Creek, 1975 or 1976, in fact. Um, so, yeah, it, it's tragic. These, these families, I have personally seen where the un, not knowing is the hardest part for these families. And as tragic as knowing that your child isn't going to come back, um, at least they, they know that and, and they don't have the torture of not knowing. I think we've got one more to the right here. Yeah, um, hi, uh, I'm recently retired law enforcement right around the same time all of you guys all, all retired. Right. You, you made it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, I, I noticed through the years of how policing has changed since the time that I went through the academy in, in the late 80s to uh, the academy now, nowadays. Um, I'm from New York and our, our standards are different, you know, as every other state, but what do you think needs to happen with policing in order to get things kind of right again? What do you think needs to happen? Stop lowering standards. Yeah. Yep. It, it really is simple. Let's put the right people in the right positions to train people the right way. Uh, Truly, you can fall back in this, on this job just to, let's do the right thing. Just do the right thing. Don't lower the standards. That's how we get into these. That's how we have these messes right now, is we're lowering standards, and it's because we are hemorrhaging folks in the law enforcement realm, and they, we can't get enough candidates. I've said over and over again, we've got to stop lowering standards. This is how we got here. Um, I think that's it for our time, but before we go, uh, Small Town Dicks, the new season, season 13, dropped today, so don't miss that. And I wanted to give our three fantastic detectives an opportunity to say one last thing to all of you. Thank you so much for joining us. Dave, we'll start with you. Anything you want to say to the people? Uh, I want to say hi to Doug. I met Doug last night. He's a fisherman, and I love him. <laughs> uh, I just, this is my first event at a crime con, and, and I've just been absolutely blown away by everyone's warmth and gratitude and how nice people are. I'm, it buoys my spirit as a, as a former sex crimes and child abuse detective. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, and, and I've been at a fair number of crime cons, and, and I kind of grabbed Dan and Dave by the collars and said, you guys need to experience this, because it is such a rewarding experience for us. You know, there is, you know, the, the people who have never attended, there's a perception of crime con, and we're here to change that perception. And I understand you in the audience, I've met so many of you over the years, and as Dave said, you know, the warmth, you know, the empathy that this community has. We want everybody to understand that, and we will continue to try to, to push that message out. Pressure's on. Thank you, Paul. Uh, I, I would echo everything they said. Uh, this has been, um, it's been a shocker to me. 
last night at the meet and greet, I see a lot of familiar faces from last night, some very kind faces, some great conversations that I had. I did not expect that. Typically, I'm the one taking photos of my wife <laughs> with fans. It's different when I'm in the photo with her. It's that is, fantastic. That is different. It's fantastic. <laughs> yes. But like they say, I, I can't thank you guys enough. It's been, it's been great. It, there was some anxiety coming into this, this weekend, and uh, I'm good now. Small Town Dicks is produced by Gary Scott and me, Yardley Smith, and co-produced by Detectives Dan and Dave. Our production manager is Logan Heftel. Our senior editor is Soren Bajan. And our editor is Christina Bracamontes. Our associate producers are Aaron Gaynor and The Real Nick Smitty. Our social media is run by the one and only Monica Scott. Our music is composed by John Forrest. And our books are cooked and cats wrangled by Ben Cornwell. If you like what you hear and want to stay up to date with the show, visit us on our website at smalltowndicks.com. Small Town Dicks would like to thank Speech Docs for providing transcripts of this podcast. You can find these transcripts on our episode page at smalltowndicks.com. And for more information about Speech Docs and their service, please go to speechdocs.com. And join the Small Town Fam by following us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at at Small Town Dicks. We love hearing from you. And if you support us on Patreon, your subscription will give you access to exclusive content and merchandise that isn't available anywhere else. Go to patreon.com slash smalltowndickspodcast. That's right. Your subscription also makes it possible for us to keep going to small towns across the country in search of the finest, rare, true crime cases told, as always, by the detectives who investigated them. So thanks for listening, small town fam. Nobody's better than you.